Back in the Jeremiah, you can throw that image up now if you want uh, hope. And um, okay. Uh, in, in 1870, a, a baby girl was born called Ida Scudder. There's a picture of Ida up there. Anybody know Ida Scudder? Heard of her before? <coughs> Good, I can say what I like now because nobody's raising their hand. Now, Ida was an American lady who went on to study medicine and become a doctor. At the age of 24, she felt called of God to become a medical missionary into India, the same place where her parents had served as well. Uh, She went to India in 1899 to bless the people with her gifts and training in medicine. She poured out her life into uh, helping to heal and to save lives of the many people in India. Uh, She gave herself to serving and loving and blessing the people of India for her entire life. She single-handedly set up the largest medical hospital in all of India in the early 1900s. A genuine desire to go and reach out to that community of people and to bless them and to see their welfare uh, increase. She was also a person who loved Jesus Christ, so she took every available opportunity through her serving the people of India to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. Today, uh, we're going to see God call us in a similar way to bless the communities that we live in by seeking their welfare in all ways and at all times. So if you've got your Bibles, please go to uh, Jeremiah 29. And we will read the first uh, nine verses there. First one. Uh, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisar, the son of Shaphan, of Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. There's some baby names for you, isn't it? It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord of the hosts of the God of Israel, Do not let the prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not... Listen to their dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, today that we can gather and that we can come freely around your word. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would just come and breathe life into that word right now. As we think about blessing the city, seeking the welfare of the city, coming to bring peace to the city. Being people in exile, as it were, awaiting for our promised land to eventually come, 
that we would come and be a community within a community to bless the larger community, I pray. Please open our hearts up today to see that we ask, Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first 28 or so chapters of Jeremiah, he's been fairly straight uh, without beating around the bush with them. He's sort of come straight out of the, off the bat and uh, given it to him fair and square. Jeremiah's a true shepherd, as we looked at that last week, and has remained faithful to God and he proclaimed exactly what God has told him to say at those times. There's been a good deal so far of what we've been seeing is, watch out, Judah, watch out, because you're playing with fire. If you continue this way of living, you'll bring judgment upon yourselves from God. And it seemed like for Jeremiah, it's been one hard slog. It's been chapter after chapter of this particular sort of stuff, which gives us a real picture of where uh, Judah was at the time. Well, by this point, after chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah, judgment has fallen upon Judah. And we now find them exactly where Jeremiah said they would be. He said, you're going to be taken captive and God's going to come in and invade the city. They are now held captive in the land of Babylon. Now, the royal family and the upper class, all the people have been exiled to Babylon. All the leaders, as we saw there and we read there, there was all their skilled people, the metal workers and all these sort of people have been removed and taken back to Babylon. They've been taken away from their palaces and then from their nice homes. They've lost their businesses and perhaps lost members of their family and friends during the siege that Babylon had, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had organised against the city of Jerusalem. Where are they now? They're living in enemy territory. They're living with their captors, probably forced into cramped quarters. And it's nothing like the homes they would have had back in Jerusalem. They're living with a people who have no regard for the one true God. That doesn't figure with the Babylonians at all. But it's here at this point, at this point, after the captivity's taken place, where Jeremiah begins to speak comfort to these people. And it's actually in the next, say, four chapters or so, 29 to 33, that we'll see God's plan of peace and restoration, as it were, being proclaimed to Judah and Israel once again. But true to form, unfortunately, they are still suffering from false prophets. And we saw that last little bit there, God's still referring to them. And what will they say? Hey, this will only be for a short time in Babylon. Okay, we slightly got it wrong. We didn't think it was going to happen. But look, we're only going to be here just maybe a couple of years and we're going to be all out of here. That was what they were telling them. You'll be back in Jerusalem before we know it. But Jeremiah's already told them a few chapters earlier. He says, when we go to Babylon... We're going to be there for 70 years. That's not a short time. That's really a lifetime. We're going to be there for 70 years. So, now Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prepares the people of Judah. Well, how shall we live in Babylon? How shall we live in exile? What are we going to do there? He's going to give them this mindset and this attitude that they'll need and what God wants them to know while they're living in Babylon. So what does he do? He writes the exiles a letter. He comforts them with a letter and to direct them to God-honouring living while they are in Babylon in exile. So today we want to answer that question somewhat. How are God's people meant to conduct themselves while we live in the communities that God has placed us in to live? How will we live in the communities or how will we conduct ourselves 
within the greater community where God has placed us in. Let's have a look at that today. Firstly, uh, Jeremiah prepares these guys for the long haul in Babylon. False prophets had already been telling this will be quick, it'll be over before you know it, we'll be back in Jerusalem uh, as quick as. Jeremiah says, no, settle down, you're going to be there for a while. Look in verses 5 and 6 with us. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, he says, and do not decrease. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, in other words, let life take its normal rhythms and patterns. Don't think you're coming here just for sort of a holding pattern and just going to be here temporarily. Do what you've always done. Don't put your life in this holding pattern as it were, waiting for this to end. This is where God has placed you. Jeremiah says, build yourself a house and make it into a home. Don't put up a tent thinking you're only going to be there for a short time. Build yourself a house and make it into a home. Build yourself a place where your family can live. Plant a veggie garden, he says. Plant a veggie garden, put some fruit trees in there, care for and nurture your garden and enjoy eating its produce. He's saying, put your roots down here for the time being. You're not here for a short time, you're here for a long haul. Get settled down, be fruitful and multiply with your life. Get married, have children. Encourage them to get married, encourage them to have children. Get on with life, Jeremiah says. You're going to be here for a long time. So get that mindset. Actually, resume your normal patterns and rhythms of living here in this foreign land. That's not all Jeremiah says. In verse 7, he takes it a bit further and he says this about seeking the welfare of the city or the community where they're living. He says this at the start of verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. So what does Jeremiah mean when he says, seek the welfare of the city? When Jeremiah used that word seek, he means with heartfelt genuineness, actively, actively pursue the welfare or the peace of that city. Not a half-hearted effort. And genuinely and actively engage in seeking the peace or the welfare of that city where you are exiled or where God has placed you in at this particular time. Jeremiah is saying this. Actively engage in seeking the prosperity of the city or the community. Get involved with that. Seek to be a participant who wants to see the community where you live in flourish and grow. Be active in this. Jeremiah is saying this. Take an active role in the success of the community you live in. Help the community to effectively accomplish its plans and purposes by getting involved with the community. Jeremiah says this. To be engaged also in supporting the health of the community. This whole sort of all-round picture of welfare. Support the health of the community where you live. Be genuinely committed within this community where you are living to their physical, mental and emotional well-being in that community. Be active participants in that. Jeremiah is saying this. 
He says, with integrity, with genuineness, be intentional about developing friendly relationships right throughout the community where you live. Work hard at peaceful, friendly relationships with all people, not just the people of Judah, the whole city. Jeremiah is saying this. With heartfelt concern, do what you can in seeking the peace of the city, do what you can to contribute to the safety of the community. Help people to be safe and feel safe. Help justice to prevail and help criminals to be reformed. God, through Jeremiah, is telling the people of Judah, seek the welfare of the city where I have placed you. All of the community, not just your perhaps enclave of the community of Judah. He's saying take a genuine, consistent, active role across all levels of community to provide for the peace and the well-being of the people. Let's remember where Jeremiah's talking to and where they are. He's talking about the city, the city of Babylon. Who are they? They're to be actively engaged with their captors. In a sense, with their enemies. In a sense, with a people in a community who have a belief system entirely different from that of Judah. God's saying, be involved with these people and seek the welfare of this place. Genuinely and with heartfelt um, effort. Jeremiah doesn't stop there though. He's seeking to bless the community, but he goes further. God through him says this. He says not only to be actively involved in the community, but pray for that community. Pray for the place where God has placed you. Look again in verse 7. Uh, middle part there. Uh, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Really interesting, when I was reading about this the other day in the commentaries, uh, they told me this is the only instance in all the Old Testament where God asks his people to pray for their enemies. It's the only place in all of the Old Testament where God actually asks the people of Israel, the people of Judah, pray for your enemies. Pray for the city on its behalf. And that's exactly what God told them to do. Babylon is an enemy of God. Babylon has caused massive amounts of death and destruction in Judah. Babylon has brought about wide-scale pain, trauma and grief to the people of Judah. And God says, pray for them. Pray for them. Bring them before me in prayer. Judah is asked, the people of Judah, while they're in exile, are asked to continue their worship in God in Babylon by praying for their captors and their enemies. What are they going to pray for? It might be hard to pray for your enemies, might not it? Well, we're not actually given specifically what they prayed for, but I think in the context of seeking the peace or the welfare of the city, I think they could be at least be praying for some of these things. As God's people, praying for the welfare of that city and praying for them on God's behalf, they're going to pray for law and order to prevail. They're going to bring that before the Lord. They're going to pray. Asking God that crime will go down while they're in that city. The criminals will be reformed and changed and turned from the evil ways. They're going to pray for the government. 
They're going to pray for the governing rules and the governing leaders of the land of Babylon in that city as well, that they'll govern in a righteous way, that God's ways will somehow filter down through the leaders and the rulers of Babylon and pray for that. It'll provide a peaceful community. God's people will be praying for those who are suffering in that community because they want to seek the welfare in a holistic sense, even their health as well, praying for good health both mentally, physically and emotionally in that community. They'll be praying for relief and healing, no doubt. As God's people, they'll be praying for peaceful relationships as well. Peaceful relationships. They'll be asking God, help provide peace Instead of division and discord, God, would you bring peace into this city in place of tension and anger? Jeremiah is saying to pray for your community is to pray for its welfare, pray for its holistic healing and health. And he gives the reason here for seeking this welfare or praying about this welfare right at the end of verse 7. He says there, For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. For in its welfare, in the peace of the city, you will find your peace. God has chosen in his mysterious ways to bring peace to his people by bringing bringing peace as a whole to the whole community. This is how God will minister his peace to the people of Judah at that particular time. As the whole community lives in peace, so will that peace then flow down on into the people of Judah while they are in exile. That is God's way of bringing peace at that particular time. If your community is experiencing peace in general, in a general well-being sense, it will naturally flow down to the rest of the community around it. If a community is prospering and doing well and successful, in a sense, the whole of the community feel that and uh, have that peace. Vice versa, if a community is struggling, just say particularly there's a major downturn in employment and large factories shut down, there's unemployment happening everywhere, the whole community begins to feel that sort of pain. They feel that struggle. Or the same, not so much today with our modern medicines, but if you were back a century or so back, when uh, epidemic and disease come along, if, if a community felt the disease, it would actually go right through the whole community when health was down. There wouldn't be much peace at that particular time. So God's saying, you will get your peace as the whole community, as it were, receives the peace. And you can contribute to that by praying for it and by actively engaging for it. God is saying... Seek for and pray for peace and good welfare for all the community where you live. That's what you do when you're in exile. Praying for God's blessing of grace upon that community. That's the passage there. As we looked at those few verses and what's Jeremiah actually saying. I thought about that. How does this look though in a 2019 community today here in Greater Shepparton? How do we think about that? How do we apply that? How do we maybe wrestle even with some particular tensions that may be in this seeking the prosperity, seeking the peace or seeking the welfare of the community that we live in? I think sometimes we actually can hold a small tension in our mind in seeking genuine prosperity or welfare of the community. The tension possibly could be this. 
If we seek and pray for peace and comfort and prosperity in our community, won't that in some ways make it harder for them to see the gospel? Won't that be in some ways endorsing their godless lifestyle if we actually get so involved in the community and bless them in so many ways and seek prosperity in the community? Won't that somehow make it harder for them to see Jesus and see the gospel? You see, that can be a real tension because in an affluent Western culture, countries that are experiencing prosperity in many, many fronts actually do become harder to reach the gospel with. It's true. The gospel's growing in third world countries and difficult countries around the world going gangbusters. But you come to affluent, prosperous Western countries, the gospel is much harder work because people are comfortable. People actually are at ease. They're rich. They're living in pleasure. So much so... They don't need Jesus, they think. That's what happens in prosperous countries. So if I ask for a continued, comfortable, safe and a peaceful community, won't that make it harder for them to see Jesus? Won't that make it harder for me to reach out to them, to tell them that they need Jesus? Because they don't think they do. They think life's pretty good. Also, the tension could be this. Shouldn't I withdraw from the community somewhat as a statement of disapproval or protest against their lifestyle? Shouldn't I actually somehow protest against this godless lifestyle I'm sort of somewhat being involved with around here? There's a bit of tension in mind too sometimes. How do I deal with that? That's the tension, I believe, that can sit there with us sometimes as we think about this peace, prosperity, health, into our community. Let me try and speak to that then as I think about that. Well, that was what Jeremiah said in the Old Testament. We looked at there. Go into the community and bless them and be active and engaging in that peace. What does the New Testament tell us here about uh, living in an unbelieving community? Let's have a look in Romans chapter 12 where we get maybe a snapshot into that. Here Paul's talking to the Romans. He's actually given them a gospel for the first 11 chapters and now he says this is how we live. It says in verse 9, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Next verse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So that's all the community we're thinking about there. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. New Testament says live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, not just your church, with all. Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By so doing, you will heap burning coals in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, there's a whole stack of things in that passage there. Uh, perhaps in your Bible I might say the marks of being a Christian or something like that. But there's a few we should highlight. There's a few we should pick out. Verse 14. What's he say? Bless those who persecute you. In other words, do good to those unbelievers who are in your community around about you. Bless them, don't curse them. Even if they're doing evil things to you. Verse 17. Do what is honourable... Only to your family. No. Do what is honourable to all. How far does all go? Does it just extend within the four walls of this room? All extends to the entire community around about us. Do what is honourable to all. Verse 18. Live peaceably with your dog and your cat. No. Live peaceably with all, as much as you're able to. Some people you might make every possible effort to live peaceably with, but they will not want to live peaceably with you. That's okay. But on our behalf, live peaceably as much as you're able to with all people. Verse 20, look after your enemies. Treat them well. Give them something to eat. Give them something to drink. This includes our communities where we live. Uh, Randy Elkhorn um, is a great guy that I know of in the United States of America. He does peaceful protests outside of abortion clinics. And uh, sometimes the abortion uh, pro-life people, pro-choice people, sorry, who want to carry out these abortions come to his church to protest against his church. You know what he does? He goes out and cooks them all a hot dog and a hot cup of coffee and takes it out to them. Do good to your enemies. Do good to all. Here's another one in Galatians chapter 6. It says this in verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yes, there's there's an inclusion there for believers. But prior to that, it's let us do good to everyone. As we have opportunity to, let us seek out every uh, possible availability to do good to everyone. Seek out the welfare of everyone in our communities. That good there, particularly in Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 10, is a very general sense of doing good. It's a very general sense. This good would include becoming Christian doctors and nurses and going in to seek to do good in that health profession. This would be also perhaps Christian teachers seeking to do good in schools. It would be a whole range of professions that you could actually be involved in to do good in the community where God has placed us in, even in this point of exile as we wait for the promised land of heaven. There's a real sense that God is wanting to redeem our communities by his common grace every day through every level of society. This is what Christians are called to do, to do good, to bless in their communities. 
It's good and it's right. We should do that. We should be involved and encouraging others to be involved to do good, to be involved. We get involved in sporting clubs, social clubs, service clubs in our communities. There are many and varied ways where you can be involved to bless and do good, to be agents of blessing. They're all avenues of bringing good and peace into our communities. We can do it right over our fence to our neighbours. We can think of ways of how we can bless them. What can I do that will seek their welfare? What can I do when I do the most simplest things we do? Going shopping at Woolworths or Coles or IGA or Aldi or wherever else you might do your shopping. How can I bless somebody there? How can I seek the peace of the community? Even the most that we think is the most mundane things of life. Be a blessing. Seek to do good. Be actively looking. What can I do to help somebody? There's a thousand different ways we actually can carry this good into every sphere of society and community where we live. But don't forget we're thinking about a tension here as well. And this tension here actually does have a limit with what we do. It does have a limit with how far we go. Do we get involved with community initiatives or social ideas that the community is all on board with? But when we look at that idea, it's actually a godless idea. It's an evil idea. Do we get involved with that? When the government wants to bring in uh, to an education system that is broken through and through, it wants to bring in more confusing uh, sexuality and gender theory discussion. How do we deal with that then if we're going to bless our community? How are we supposed to respond and react when the government may do something like that? Do we get on board sort of only half-heartedly then and support it? Or what do we do with this tension then that begins to start to shape in our mind? There is a limit. There is a limit. We don't get on board with any godless ideas within our community. We don't support godless ideas. We don't support a broken education system that is teaching all sorts of confusion to our kids at a young age of life. Actually, what we do do in those particular times, we do protest against the community. We do protest. But these protests must be done carefully and appropriately. Sensitively. We seek the right channels to voice our disapproval when the community is heading headlong into something that is evil. We don't support it then. Carefully and sensitively, we voice our disapproval approval, and we protest. We're still wrestling now. There's a bit of a tension in our mind here, particularly in the sense of, um, of uh, prosperity and what that might do, how it might make the community harder. But before we get there, let's think about what I believe is a real important benefit that comes out of loving our community in this way, seeking to bless our community. Christianity is fast losing favour in our community. You can see by Israel Falal's comment this week, um, he didn't get too many pats on the back from the community round about us. We seem to be the ones who are, aren't going with the flow of the community that we live in. Uh, there's a number of issues where Christianity really is on the nose within the community. But I'm firmly convinced about this, and I believe Scripture stands to support this as well, 
that if we work hard at being a loving community of believers, reaching out to the community, seeking to bless it by blessing them through good works and actively seeking peace by doing acts of mercy as well, that this action has major potential to break down barriers that unbelievers may erect against us, thinking how bad we are and we don't go with their ideas. If we do good works, if we do acts of mercy, I believe this goes a long way in actually pulling down some of these preconceived ideas that they build up against Christians as we demonstrate an active life of seeing the gospel work out through our lives to bless the community that we're in. I think in a Western world today, this is crucial. It's crucial that we demonstrate real-time Christianity, real-time gospel living by blessing those around about us. If we can demonstrate to them that we are a loving people in a genuine way, and we can do this by the love and the serving that we have towards them in the community, this will help point people to Jesus. It really will. Matthew 5, 14, 16 tells me it will. He says here, Jesus speaking, he says, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So we are meant to display something. We're a city on a hill. We're a light. We are meant to display something. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see, they may see, not hidden, see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. (coughs) Jesus is saying, let your light shine through good works, through the good that you do in blessing the city, blessing the community, blessing where you are. Let your light shine through that. Let us love and bless the community through countless ways of serving them. Going out of a way to actively look for that in a gospel-focused way. And what will they do? It tells us there that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They'll see something real and genuine about us going out of a way to do that. This helps carry into a prosperous community that's living in prosperity, I believe. Dealing with that tension and minding it. If we live in this prosperous country and if we're seeking to see our community continue to prosper and we're worried that that prosperity may be a hindrance to the gospel because we're making them more comfortable, then we can show by our light all good works that even though we live in a prosperous land and we do here in Shepparton, that we will live in a different way with our prosperity. Let me say that again. That we can show by our light and good works that even though we live in a prosperous land, that we will live in a different way with our prosperity. How does it look? I think it looks somewhat like this. We can choose a modest lifestyle. We can choose a lifestyle of modesty. We'll use whatever resources God has generously given to us to sacrificially give to others. We don't need to indulge in the same prosperity that the rest of the community indulge in. 
by lavishing it upon themselves. God may uh, bless us by being prosperous, but then we can use that prosperity in a very, very different way to show them by our good works who Jesus is. And I think by this, we communicate a message to our, our community that there's something different about us. Yeah, we live in the same community and we're sharing the same prosperity, but we've got an entirely different motivation. And that motivation, obviously, is Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. It's a motivation of the gospel. This motivation, which I think can be demonstrated within a prosperous land, this motivation causes us or enables us to look beyond ourselves not looking inward, but looking outwards to those around about us and to look at others. In the natural, we do want to look at ourselves first and pat up and comfort our own lives before we think about others. It's the natural bent that we have. It's all about me. But the gospel speaks a different word and gives a whole new power. The gospel says this. It gives me the power to look out beyond myself and see other people first. And go and serve those other people ahead of myself. That will say something very loud to the community we live in. That we're not thinking about ourselves first. We're actually thinking about you first. We want to serve you in that way. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve... And give my life as a ransom for many. The gospel turns everything upside down in comparison to this world. So we can live in a prosperous community. And we can live in a prosperous way, but then we can use that prosperity sacrificially to bless others, to help others. Because you see, that's what Ida Scudder did back over 100 years ago. She came to India as a missionary. She came there as a Christian doctor doing good works. She came to bless and to serve the community of India, seeking their welfare. Ida Scudder came from a very wealthy family. She could have stayed back in the United States and lived in comfort, lived in prosperity, lived in all those riches. But the gospel transformed the way Ida Scudder looked at this world, in particular the way she looked at people. She said, I'll use what God's given to me to go and bless that, those lands. And she did. She trained doctors and treated scores and scores of patients. And that eventually gave her countless opportunities to share the gospel message. She not only built hospitals, she built Bible studies. 